Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 15, verses 15 through 32, with Pastor John King. Uh, just a few quick words about that. Uh, something that I've been praying for quite some time, and a few others that are here today, actually. Um, you know, Mark and um, whatever, Sharon. <laughs> uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be going out to Raleigh with uh, Hatteras Island Christian Fellowship, so we'll have some folks there. So if you can make it, you know, for that Saturday event, uh, we want to give you plenty of time to prepare for that. But, uh, you know, as you, uh, as you see our culture and you see the attacks of the enemy, there's three main areas that we see when it concerns kids. The unborn, uh, the kids in the public school system, being sexualized in an early age in many places, or they're attempting to. Uh, they're being taught to hate their country. And then we see our youth, our teens, who are leaving the church in droves. So the enemy really wants to do a work to destroy the things that God has. And I'm sorry about uh, getting a little emotional here, but folks, uh, we are going to be given an opportunity. We, we always ask the question when you see this crazy, chaotic world, what can I do? You know, the Bible says I'm not to take up arms against the government. The Bible says I'm to be peaceable and loving and caring. But what can I do? Well, we still have the freedom in this country to speak. And so we're going to give you guys an opportunity. And I just encourage you guys, really pray about it. If you can't make it out to Raleigh, we have that whole week. We're going to have the Love Life folks here that Sunday. I'll be giving a short message, but they'll be giving a presentation we have the opportunity to pray and fast. And, and they'll, they'll say it, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say it today. They, they say that when, you, when a church prays and fasts, when you get that widespread thing happening among the church, the abortion centers lose about 70% of their business that week. So let's just keep that in mind. You know, we've got 700 abortion centers. You, you guys know, I never talk about this stuff, okay? But we've got 700 abortion centers in America only 200 of them have a Christian presence. And you might ask your question, well, why are you going all the way to Raleigh instead of up to Chesapeake? Well, this group, Love Life, has a presence there in Raleigh. And I, I believe that, you know, maybe someday the Lord will have us go to Chesapeake and uh, Newport News or Virginia Beach. Uh, but, you know, here we are. We have this opportunity to partner with our brothers and sisters. And so I want to just encourage you to do so and uh, commit it to prayer. Please commit to prayer. Amen? Amen? Well, today we are in Mark chapter 15. Verse, we're going to cover verses 15 through 32. 15 through 32. And while you're turning there, I'll just remind you, last week we saw Jesus stand trial under the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. We saw how the drama of this event unfolded with the corrupt and vengeful Jewish high court pressuring a compromised Roman politician who would deliver a totally sinless Jesus of Nazareth to be falsely accused and condemned in our place. Yet the sovereignty of God remains intact. He directs all things to carry out his purposes. Jesus himself said in chapter 14, verse 21, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, just as it is prophesied. 
Today we will begin the climax of the book of Mark. You believe you've been in the gospel of Mark since September of 2020. We begin the climax of the gospel of Mark. This is what the whole gospel has been moving towards from the beginning. All of the previous predictions of Jesus' death and suffering that he himself declared to his disciples and followers have now come upon him. Let's read through our narrative today in verse 15 of Mark chapter 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above. The king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled which says, He was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Heavenly Father, we, we pause right now, Lord, to reflect on, yes, the climax of this gospel. For many of us, it's the very beginning. We trace back, we recognize, Lord, that what you did on the cross and the suffering and dying and your blood shed had to happen. Were it not so, we would not have what we have today, what we claim to have as followers of Jesus Christ, and that's salvation for eternity and forgiveness of sins. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would just humble our hearts properly and respectfully as we read and study this passage. Lord, we know that you bring fresh and new your word, even though we may have read it many, many times before. But you bring it fresh upon our hearts, Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Let us understand your word clearly. 
Go before us, Lord. Let us take it in now. We pray in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 So we left off in verse 15 last week. We're going to start again in verse 15. We noticed that Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd. He wanted to gratify the crowd. In doing so, he released Barabbas to them. And what did he do? He delivered Jesus. You see, the crowd had been stirred up so much that they would choose a murderous terrorist over a sinless Jesus of Nazareth. And it reads here that after he had scourged him, in other words, they had taken a whip to him, a whip that was referred to as a flagellum, made from strands of leather with sharp bones or spikes or rough lead attached to the end so that it would cut deeply into the flesh. His hands were tied to a post above his head and he was scourged. It was the custom for the prisoner to be lashed until he was judged near death by the presiding centurion, although Jewish trials allowed only 40 lashes. The criminal's back was, of course, nothing more than an unrecognizable mass of torn flesh. Some commentators note that the Romans used scourging to elicit further confession of crimes. Allowing the presiding centurion to lessen the blows and show some measure of mercy. Our Lord had nothing to confess. He was sinless and blameless. He took the blows in their full measure. According to Luke's gospel, Pilate did this in an attempt to punish him and then release him hoping somehow that this would satisfy the crowd. Luke 23, 16, he says, I will therefore chastise him and release him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas, and after he had scourged Jesus, he sent him to be crucified. A vile form of execution. The great Puritan writer Matthew Henry would say four things when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. First of all, it was, of course, bloody. Hebrews 9.22, it says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Jesus needed to shed his blood that we might have eternal life. The next thing Matthew Henry says, not only is it bloody, but the crucifixion was painful. Victims of crucifixion did not usually die for two or three days. But this was determined by the presence or absence of a seat or a footrest on the post. A person suspended by his hands lost blood pressure quickly and the pulse rate was increased. Usually the victim had been severely beaten or flogged before crucifixion took place, as our Lord was. 
orthostatic collapse would sufficient or through uh, insufficient blood circulating to the brain and the heart would follow shortly. If the victim could ease his body by supporting himself with the seat and the footrest, the blood could be returned to some degree of circulation in the upper part of his body. Extremely painful. It was bloody, it was painful, and it was shameful. The victim would be hung naked on a public thoroughfare so that they could easily be seen. Onlookers would be reminded of the consequences of opposing Rome. It was bloody, it was painful, it was shameful, and it was cursed, according to the Bible, Deuteronomy 21:23. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Back to verse 16. Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 16 says that then the soldiers led him, Jesus, away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. See, they were going to make sport of this. A garrison would be what's called a spira. It could be a band of Roman soldiers up to about 600 men. And this praetorium was known as the Hall of Judgment. It was the governor's residence while he was in Jerusalem. And so in verse 17, it says they clothed him with purple. Most likely this was a faded military garment that the Roman soldiers wore. And it had faded from scarlet to purple, which is a color associated with royalty. And they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head, mocking him further. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-nine records that when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they placed a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So they put the royal robe on him. They put the crown of thorns upon him. And they gave him a reed that represents a royal scepter, just as a king would have. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Verbally mocking him. And then they struck him on the head with the reed and they spat on him. The same reed they had mockingly dressed him with. Hitting him on the head and then they spat. In other words, the Greek word is, is to keep spitting. They just, just mocked him and spit upon him. There's 600 soldiers here. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. Charles Spurgeon writes of this event. He asks the question, or he gives us the uh, exhortation, Charles Spurgeon says, See the scarlet robe. It is a contemptuous imitation of the imperial purple that a king wears. See above all that crown upon his head. It has rubies in it, but the rubies are composed of his own blood, forced from his 
blessed temples by the cruel thorns. See, they pay him homage. But the homage is their own filthy spittle which runs down his cheeks. They bow the knee before him, but it is only in mockery. They salute him with a cry, Hail, King of the Jews! But it is done in scorn. Was there ever a grief like this? In verse 20, And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him. They made a cruel game of it. Yet the Lord himself prophesied this very thing. In Mark 10, 34, he said, And they will mock him, and scourge him, and spit on him, and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus never spoke of his torture and his crucifixion without talking about his resurrection. Never. They put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Now Jesus would be put on parade, forced to carry his cross towards his execution. A centurion on horseback would lead the condemned while a herald of Caesar would shout out his crime. And everybody would see it. Chuck Swindoll Having been a military man early, early in his life, he was in the Marine Corps, uh, spells it out this way. He writes, Standard procedure called for him, Jesus, to be handed over to an exactor mortis, a man trained in the macabre art of crucifixion, usually a centurion in rank, given command of a squad of four soldiers called a quaternion. The soldiers laid the crossbeam on Jesus' shoulders to carry. Prisoners would not have carried the entire cross. The weight would have exceeded 250 pounds. A healthy man would struggle to carry or even drag that much weight more than a few hundred yards, to say nothing of someone scourged nearly to death. Jesus carried the horizontal crossbeam portion known as the Patabulum. And there he was. Oftentimes we look for application in, in a situation like this. We say, well, how, how do you apply this to your life as a Christian? How do you, you know, it's, it's enough just to read about it. It's enough just to take it in and learn and understand the great suffering that our Lord has gone through. Well, once again, folks, we're reminded when it comes to Jesus, what are you and I accused of when it comes to Jesus? Would you be accused of selling your life, giving your life over to the Lord, of surrendering your life? Would you be accused of that if you had to stand in front of a court of law? Would you declare him to be your Lord and Savior in a public setting when called upon? In Mark 8.34, he says, when he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's application 101. Amen. 
We don't need to dig deep for that, do we? But let's finish the passage. 35 through 38 of Mark 8. It says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now we see a man who was compelled to bear the cross in verse 21. It says, Then they compelled a certain man by name, Simon a Cyrenian, and further description of his family, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Here's another person who found his, you know, found, landed in the Bible, the most popular writing of all time, the, the bestseller of all time. And he would be forever remembered. He would be memorialized throughout history due to his association with Jesus. But notice they compelled him. You see, the Romans had the authority to compel or press into service anyone, someone in this case, to carry a load or a burden for one mile. That was just the law of the land. And this is where we get the reference from Jesus in Matthew 5. 41. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And we see he was a certain man. He was, he was a well-known man. Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now it appears that these two persons were well-known among the first disciples of our Lord. And one writer puts it this way, it is not unlikely that this is the same Alexander who is mentioned in Acts 19.33. And then the other is a Rufus spoken of by Paul in Romans 16.13. And so it is fitting that the man who carried Jesus' cross most likely would come to know him as Lord and Savior. What a privilege. And as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now, this guy, again, think of your encounters with the Lord. Think of when you first came to know Jesus. You were going in some direction. You had no idea what was going to happen. And then he appeared. This man, came, he came to attend the Passover and ended up meeting the Passover lamb. And so it is with many of us as we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We think we're just kind of minding our own business or we have a certain mission. And then He comes. And everything changes. Amen? Amen. <laughs> and so He was coming out of the country, passing by, and here He was pressed to carry His, carry his cross. Because like we said, Jesus had been scourged so brutally that His physical body could not carry this crossbeam very far. Now interesting, because we like to compare, especially Mark is sort of brief in these respects, we like to compare the, the harmony of the Gospels, and 
We see uh, that Jesus uh, recorded in Luke 23, verses 27 through 31. We'll read through it. But Jesus was also able to deliver his last sermon before he was crucified. And you see it says, And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done with the dry? Now, mainly Jesus is referring to the fall of Jerusalem, which is coming 40 years hence, in A.D. 70. And he's concluding the image of green wood versus dry wood is likely, it's a comparison between himself and Israel. Green, sap-filled wood doesn't catch fire nearly as quickly as dead, dry wood. The judgment falling upon him, as horrific as it was, cannot compare to the condemning fire coming to those who conspired against Christ. But his words were also a preview of the devastation that is coming during what we call the Great Tribulation. So interesting side note there. Back to our narrative today in verse 22. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. It's, a, it's an Aramaic word, which the uh, Mark translates for us. Uh, and, and we have it translated to our English. This place of a skull. In Jesus' day, the location among the rocks outside the city may have resembled a skull. Interestingly, the word, the Latin word calvaria is where we get the modern day word calvary. It all came from Golgotha. And in verse 23, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink. Some biblical scholars will point out that when ancients mixed the fragrant myrrh with the wine, the purpose was to enhance the flavor and the, the fragrance, but it was also provided as a painkiller. And Matthew's account may be more precise in that sense. Matthew 27, 34, it says, They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. This fulfills the prophecy in Psalm 69, 21. It says, They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. But notice, he did not take it. Just like Jesus took the full punishment of the scourging, he would feel the full spectrum of pain on the cross. He would feel the weight of that. And it's a reminder for you and I to follow as we do God's will, the fellowship of His sufferings. Philippians 3.10. Paul writes, he says, Then I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. We, we often get the wrong impression or the wrong information up front about becoming a Christian as though 
all of life's problems are just going to disappear. But really we're called not only to carry the cross, to bear the cross, to follow, to put down you know, our, our worldly desires, but we're also called to share in his sufferings. And he equips each and every person to a different degree. Some people obviously suffer much more than others. But for those Christ followers who follow Jesus, that suffering was given to you based on what he had determined for you. And he had equipped to see you through, and he has a purpose for that. So this isn't just some sad story of a gruesome torture. There's spiritual application to all things that happen uh, to Jesus here. Verse 24, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments. Now, again, we, we need to be reminded that in, Paul, or in, in Mark's day, in that early part of uh, Jesus' ministry, in that ancient world, when you describe, when you said the word crucifixion, you didn't need to go into detail. You didn't need to explain the process and the procedure that was used because they would be very, very, not only familiar with it, but terrified of it. But in our day, you know, it would be like saying, you know, send somebody to the electric chair or stand before a firing squad or, you know, gas chamber. You, I wouldn't need to explain to you in detail what that was all about. But it's helpful for us to have a better, a deeper understanding of what they already knew. John MacArthur writes this. He says, the Roman, talking about crucifixion, the Roman writer Cicero described it as, quote, the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. End quote. Apparently originating in Persia, crucifixion was later used by the Romans as a brutal means of inflicting death on its victims while also deterring other would-be criminals. It is estimated that by the time of Christ, Rome had crucified some 30,000 people in Israel alone. After the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, so many Jewish rebels were killed by crucifixion that the Romans ran short of lumber to make the crosses. More from Chuck Swindoll about crucifying. They crucified him. When the prisoner arrived, the patabulum was placed on top of a vertical member called the stipes and secured by a mortise and tenon joint. So the cross beam was placed. The cross most likely looked like a large capital T. The soldiers placed Jesus on the face of the T with his arms outstretched and feet flat across the stipes, which is the post. Most often a victim was tied in place to prolong his death. But they nailed the hands and the feet of Jesus so that he would die within hours instead of lingering for days. Pilate undoubtedly ordered this in view of the Passover feast. Remember, the Passover feast was about to take place. He could not afford more complaints against him in Rome. And so then they divided his garments. And they would strip him naked. You see the photo, you know, you see the pictures and the paintings. I, I don't, the Romans didn't much care about 
of that. And so they would strip him naked and he would be in complete humiliation. And then, of course, they cast lots to determine what every man should take. They took all his clothes from him. Now they were going to divide them up. Again, fulfilling prophecy in Psalm 22, verse 18, says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In verse 25, now it was the third hour. Now the Jewish method of keeping time, a new day always started at 6 a.m., our time. And then the third hour would make it 9 a.m. So here he is at 9 o'clock in the morning. Now John's gospel used Roman timekeeping, which is closer to our timekeeping. Their day begins at midnight, just like ours does. And so when Pilate sentenced Jesus earlier in the morning, he sentenced him several hours earlier, John referred to the sixth hour. So at six in the morning he was sentenced, but at 9 a.m. he was crucified. And they crucified him. Staruo. That's the word they used. More detail from Chuck Swindoll. Then came the nailing. Combining history with a little imagination, I would suggest that one soldier lay across his chest while another pinned his legs. Two others stretched his arms across the beam and drove a five-inch long, three-eighths of an inch wide square nail through the base of each palm, angled inward to exit at the wrist. They bent his knees, placed his feet flat against the stipes, and they drove a nail through each foot. Now you, you have these people today who try to deny that anything like that would have ever happened, that they never would have drove nails in his feet. But archaeology always tends to prove people wrong. It tends to prove the skeptics wrong and validate the Bible over and over and over again. Several years ago, archaeologists found a man's bones with a nail still lodged in one ankle. He had been crucified. Archaeologists found a man's bones uh, suggesting, excuse me, suggesting that his feet had been nailed to the side of the post. So for those that try to tell you, oh, they, didn't, they weren't quite that cruel, they would have tied him up, archaeology proves otherwise. And the Bible is a historical document. You can remind people of that. The soldiers then tilted the cross up and guided the base into the hole. The cross suddenly stirred vertical. It was then dropped to the bottom with a jarring thud. You've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. By 9 o'clock in the morning, the soldiers had finished driving wedges between the beam and the sides of the hole to keep the cross firmly upright. Now this timing, you think man's in charge, these cruel Romans, they did it because you know they were trained and they did it all. Are you going to try to accuse the Jews of murdering Jesus like the Nazis did? No, this timing was all according to God's plan. He celebrated the Passover early with his disciples the night before because he was from Galilee. Remember, Galileans sometimes would celebrate earlier, a day early. His sacrificial death would now coincide with the Passover lambs, thousands of them, being slaughtered on the temple grounds this afternoon, which is called Good Friday. 
So as he was stood up on the cross, they were cutting the throats of the lambs. Now talk about man, talk about people. One writer put it this way. He said, man demonstrated the height of depravity by rejecting and putting God's son to death. God demonstrated the height of love by not sparing his son, but by allowing him to die for man's sins. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so our Lord is hanging on the cross in verse 26, and there's an inscription above his head. And what was written was the king of the Jews. That was his charge. Pilate had written specifically this. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, recorded in John 19, 19. Luke 23, 38, another historical document. This an inscription was also written over him in letters in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Three languages. This is the king of the Jews. And again, John 19, 21, and 22. Therefore the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate. See, they didn't like the fact that he did this. Pilate was antagonizing him, them, the Jewish leaders, because they, he felt like he was manipulated by them, and he was. And they said, do not write the king of the Jews. See, they didn't consider Jesus to be the king of the Jews. Obviously, they wouldn't have crucified him. But he said, I am the king of, Jew, I am the, king of the Jews. And Pilate, excuse me, uh, they, they said about Jesus, they said, do not write the king of the Jews. But Jesus said, I am the king of the Jews. So that was his ac accusation. But in verse 22, listen to Pilate, he says, what I have written, I have written. In other words, you're not going to push me around anymore. You got your way, but I'm not changing what it says on that cross. Now of the seven indictments against Jesus, one was to destroy the temple. These were all in the trials and the various, you know, kind of put the whole gospel picture together. He was accused of uh, saying he will destroy the temple, which is a lie. He was an evildoer. He was misleading the nation. He was forbidding the people to pay taxes, another bold lie. He was claiming to be king. He was stirring up an insurrection. And he was claiming to be the son of God. That's the one that got him. Only the last had any facts to back it up. And that's the name, that's the one that Pilate used. He certainly did claim and admitted, Jesus Christ admitted that he was the son of God. And they considered that blasphemy. Verse 27, and with him, they also crucified two robbers. Now, a robber, these weren't just like, you know, petty thieves. These were people who plunder and openly by violence. These would be armed robbers. Perhaps part of the insurrection that Barabbas was in jail for. One on his right and the other on his left. And then verse 28 says, so the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. The scripture was fulfilled. God's plans are not just wishful thinking. He will bring it to pass. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's a, a quote from Isaiah 53:12. Now you need to know, I need to tell you that verse 28 here in Mark's gospel um, is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, so, you know, some smarty pants is going to come up and say, see, the Bible's wrong. It's lying to you again. No, it's true. It's likely was put in by a copyist because they were familiar with what Luke said in Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. He said, for I say to you, that which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. Verse 29. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. You know, you know the mocking. I mean, I, I was thinking about this, and, and uh, you know this 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 wag. I mean, the, Mark took the time to say they were wagging their heads. Maybe we associate it with children, where we're like, "Uh huh, I'm sure." You know, whatever. It's a it's a rail. It's to revile against. It's contemptuous. It's, a, it's a, a head gesture that, you know, you know, you think, do I often do that? Do I ever do that when somebody confronts me? Do I wag my head if I think I'm right and they're wrong? And they said, aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days. You know, they took this whole thing and, and, and this, this one charge against Jesus. And they're like, look at you. Look at you now. They're mocking him. Save yourself in verse 30. Come down from the cross. What hardened hearts destitute of humanity. But folks, when you look at your own heart, and sometimes when you come to before the Lord in prayer and you recognize what a hardened heart I have, what hardened heart I have in my mind right now, my thoughts towards somebody, how can I be that way? Well, because of your human nature. And so these people were just literally, here's a man suffering and dying, an excruciating death, and they're wagging their heads and they're saying, why don't you come down? You know, why don't you get off that cross? And then likewise, verse 31, the chief priests also were mocking, adding insult to injury, if you will. Now these were the spiritual leaders of the people. Instead of leading the people to embrace their Messiah, they joined in the mockery. Instead of leading by example with compassion for someone suffering and dying right before their eyes, they joined in the mockery. And they said he saved others, admitting that he had done miracles. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. The same Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and they couldn't deny that. We know, we know in Scripture is clear, he could have saved himself. He could have put a stop to this in any time. So it was true. He couldn't save himself because he couldn't do that and save us at the same time. He chose to obey the Father's plan and save us. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah, Lord. Verse 32, they said, Let the Christ... The king of Israel descend now from the cross that he, we may see and believe. You know, here they were like, okay, if he can get off the cross, we're going to change our entire mind about him. We're going to, we're going to, everything's going to be good. All he has to do is get off the cross. How dare they say that? Do you ever put yourself in that place with God? Say, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. Oh, we need to be careful about this.
Even those who were crucified with him reviled him on his left and his right. The criminals on each side decided to join in on the insults. Now here they are dying a, a, a miserable death. But according to Luke, one of them changed his mind. Look at Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. It's good news. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Right to the very end of his life, his crucifixion, Jesus saves. <laughs> Jesus saves. Warren Wiersbe wrote, he says, It seems incredible that the religious leaders so hated Jesus that they even went out to Golgotha to mock him. Thomas Carlyle called the ridicule the language of the devil. And in this case, that definition is certainly true. The idle spectators who passed by were only too eager to follow the bad example of their leaders. So enduring mockery was added to the sufferings of our Lord. They mocked him as a prophet as Savior, and as King. You know, maybe in today's message, and we're going to conclude here, but maybe um, you'll look at sarcasm and snide remarks in a different light after reading about this. Maybe you and I will be less quick on the draw, okay, in our response, especially maybe social media. Maybe we should resist uh, sarcasm. Maybe just for a little while. Maybe I should do that. And be careful to monitor my speech a little better. What's the best application of today's message, folks? Surrender your life to Christ. Recommit your life to Christ. Renew your appreciation for the great sacrifice that he endured for you and I. Lord, we thank you for your wonderful, wonderful work. As terrible as it was, as hard and difficult as it is to come face to face with the reality and even the details, Lord, we know that you did it from a heart of love. We know that you sacrificed so that we might have eternal life. And you suffered separation from the Father, which, Lord, we'll cover next week. Lord, you did it on our behalf. And Lord, let us be ever so grateful and thankful for your work. Let us be ever so grateful and thankful for all that you've done to bring us wholeness in you. Life eternal. Thank you, Lord, that you washed us and cleansed us of our sins and unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness. And we ask that you would go before us today. 
as we continue our fellowship together or as we head out for our, to begin our week to have a day of rest. Lord, let us reflect on our lesson for today. We ask and pray all these things now in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said. Amen. I invite you to stand for our closing prayer. Psalm 90, verses 12 through 17. Let's stand and recite this together as we go along our way. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You all have a wonderful day in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.